Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we are going to spend some time talking about cake and cookies because we could not choose between the two. But first, it's our chance to sit back, relax, and unwind from the week that was with two excellent humans. Back this week, we have the senior producer of WBEZ's Midday Talk Show, Reset, Maha Ahmad. Maha, hello. Hey, Greta. How you doing? Also here is the host of the podcast La Brega from WNYC Studios and Futuro Studios, Alana Casanova-Burgess. Alana, welcome to Nerdette. Hi. Hello from Brooklyn. Yay. Okay, so I want to start this week with a story from The New Yorker. The headline is The End of the English Major. This is arguably not a new story, but it is a pretty interesting one. It's all about how, you know, fewer and fewer students seem interested in majoring in English. And I think you can expand that out to the humanities in general. It cites a number of different reasons for that, including a changing relationship to work and bigger financial uncertainty for younger generations. As I said, obviously, this isn't new. I do think it's interesting, though, partly because I was an English major and I'm really grateful for that education. Were y'all humanities people, Alana? Yeah, I was an English major. It was actually English and general rhetoric at oh, cool. Binghamton. Yeah, at Binghamton University, which is a SUNY school, upstate New York um, State University. And yeah, yeah, I was an English major. Guilty. Um, what about you, Maha? I was supposed to be an English major. <laughs> I feel like this is, and hearing you, I, Greta, I didn't know you were an English major, and hearing that you both were, like, I feel like there's a clear pipeline between like literature lovers and English majors to journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had I had always intended to be an English major. That was my my dream in college. Um, and then, you know, I happened to answer an ad for paid editors uh, at the campus paper oh, that um, I went to. And then I found like my calling in journalism. But my eye has always been looking over at like sort of the the literature world thinking oh, I still have that novel I want to write. Ugh. So um but but I have nothing but respect for English majors and uh one of the teachers that made the mo- the biggest impact in my life was my English teacher mm. in high school. So now I'm jealous of you both <laughs> who got to do that. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because I feel like that does speak to something that comes up in this piece, right? The idea of someone picking a more like quote unquote practical degree but then sort of like peeking over the wall and being like what are they doing over there? You you know? Yeah, that, that idea in the piece resonated with me because shortly after I graduated, I thought, oh, what if I had studied, I don't know, like political science or mm. <laughs> I don't know, like something other than English, maybe minored in English, but just gotten more of an education in not particularly for like getting a job purposes, but just to mm. round myself out like as an English major. Obviously, I was learning how to communicate, how to put together a story and an argument. But 
like what was really behind that argument? And then I think about all the colleagues I've had in journalism who were career changers, like maybe did something else before and studied mm. economics or something. They always brought something extra to those pitch meetings that I was like <laughs> jealous of. You know, they were like, you know, oh, well, debt debt ratios or something. And I'd be like, oh, God damn, they, they're really smart, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that's that could be an argument for liberal arts in general, right? Where it's like, I love the idea of getting a really well-rounded scope of information. And it reminds me of a quote from the piece, which was that, you know, the goal of such an education isn't direct career, career training, but cultivation of the mind, which I think, I don't know, I would like to argue that everyone benefits from that, you know? I, I 100% agree. And actually, Alana, you just said something about like minoring in English. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's what I should have done. <laughs> Why did I do that? I need to do over college. And like I looked up <laughs> sort of the decline and fall of the English major. Um, and there was a piece that talked about like um, the unsung hero of the English major mm. is the ability to empathize. Yes. And like the mm-hmm. fact that I think so like so many fewer people are studying the humanities is it actually like since the story has come up actually concerning for me because what is the future right like that's to sound like super existential Mm. but you know where where do we go if more and more people lack that ability to empathize lack that ability to um you know uh see the like the versatility of language and and culture and everyone's just becoming you know um highly paid i don't know engineers and tech stem people which i also love stem but you know you kind of need both so yeah i don't know maybe everybody should just become like a an english minor maybe that's the solution (laughs) (laughs) we're also i should say like very lucky to all be humanities people who can pay the rent you know like absolutely i think we can all agree that the empathy muscle is important but I'm not sure that I'm like shedding too many tears about this particular. Yeah. 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 Oh, I'm devastated. <laughs> but I also say, I mean, like it's it's clear white, right? Like one of the biggest drivers is the fact that college is just crazy expensive That's and nobody wants to be 40, 50, 60,000 dollars in debt. Oh, minimum. And, if you're lucky. Yeah. A and, year. And minimum, that, yeah. You know? I mean, it's and crazy. And not know. And not know how to pay that off clearly. Like you want a clear path to a well-paying salary. And the one, I think, you know, main downside of the English major is you don't always see that clear path. Yeah. Especially going into debt for it. I'm not sure I can conscionably recommend that. But like for my own self, I'm so grateful for the the education I got for sure. So we're going to pivot hard to our next story, which I thought was very strange. This was NPR cited, cited a study about how people who think that they're more attractive are less likely to wear a face mask to protect them from COVID. I don't even know what the question is with this one, except maybe just like, how ridiculous is this story? <laughs> Meha, what do you think? It was a frustrating thing to read, right? Like the that you, that these the more good looking you feel, the less likely you would be to wear a mask. And thus are putting your health and the health of others at a higher risk yeah. because you're just too damn good looking yeah. <laughs> to cover it up. Uh-oh. I think I had like a totally different opinion this week. <laughs> What'd you think? I was like, I was like, yeah. <laughs> good for them. I want to see their beautiful faces. No, no. Like wear a mask. Absolutely. But it doesn't surprise me no. that people who consider themselves attractive are like 
more confident and I guess I I mean I've had days where I'm like thank god a mask is required for sure for sure <laughs> you know yeah also I don't want anybody to see my expression yeah yes <laughs> like let me just that let me just clutch. hide this resting face <laughs> behind a mask I definitely had that moment yesterday I was wearing a mask and my Uber driver um lovely man but he was saying some weird things mm. and I was <laughs> making facial expressions behind my mask and in my head, I thought, oh, thank God he can't see the very ugly face I was making. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for everybody having confidence. But, you know, like, that is not going to save you from COVID, no. my friends. Oh, no, totally. that's ridiculous. <laughs> Th- that's why I invested in uh, some really pretty KN95s that have lots of, like, patterns yes. on them and stuff. Because yeah. if I'm going to deprive the public of the chance to see my face, <laughs> I want to give them something else to look at. You know, very like, great. a little... A little neon plaid, perhaps. Oh, my God. Wow. A little, yeah, like a little paisley moment. I made it into a whole thing. That's delightful. I love that. So as I mentioned, our next two segments are about cookies and cake. Um, I know we're already sort of starting to emerge from deep winter baking times, but, you know, there is a snowstorm coming to Chicago allegedly this weekend. Um, Has either of you made anything particularly tasty that you would like to tell us about? Maha, I know you do some baking. I do. Well, I attempt to do some baking. <laughs> um, I'm I'm somebody who watches Great British Bake Off, thinks that looks easy, and then I can do that, and then completely, I don't even know what happens. Just it just it just falls apart. <laughs> so I really am interested in making like some really good Japanese souffle pancakes, which Ooh. I guess is less baking, more just cooking. Mm. But um, like, and I've and I've made a few attempts. They do not at all look like they look like normal pancakes. Um, they do not look have that height or that fluff like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. They taste delicious. I will say I've nailed the taste. When I make them, they're really lopsided <laughs> and definitely not. This must be like I would say like four or five inches high almost. What? But like maybe that maybe that's too high. Maybe it's actually probably a few <laughs> inches. But if people are listening and thinking like I know exactly how to do that, please tweet me or something because. <laughs> I am struggling here. It's been like a month and I don't know what I'm doing. Ooh, good idea. Okay. Sounds good. Um, Alana, what about you? Do you do much cooking or baking? Yeah, I I think I've come into a different stage of baking. I know that a couple of years ago when we were all into like doing everything super slowly and mm. having our sourdough or anything, I've, I've passed that. And now I just want some kind of instant gratification. So a few weeks ago, it was really cold here in New York and I had some friends over to just like do crafts and hang out, you know, like mm. we can't go outside. And I made the New York Times has this like, I think it's called the giant almond croissant is oh, the, is oh the recipe. God. Yeah, really good and super easy. You basically take like puff pastry that you can just buy in the store. So it's a big cheat. And then you make this almost like marzipan filling oh. um, and you sort of you bake it twice. So you bake it once to get the the puff pastry just a little golden and then you make this marzipan almond filling and then you put the the top on the puff pastry thing and then you put it back in the oven and I cut it up and I put it some like pretty little dust of sugar on it and it was such a I, what it, what do people call it a crowd pleaser such a yes. crowd pleaser <laughs> like like everybody was like oh my god can we get seconds you know and I felt very fancy and it took almost no effort at all so oh, that's I love that that was I mean good. that doesn't sound like no effort that sounds like a lo- like true true <laughs> you true need, you true. need to know you need to know what you're doing effort. a bit yeah, yeah it was yeah. it was ba- the spreading of the filling was perhaps the most challenging element <laughs> sounds great well those both sound delicious I can't wait to try them 
Alana, Maha, thank you both for coming on. This was really fun. Thanks, Greta. Thank you. After the break, we are going to talk about two of my favorite things, cake and cookies. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest is Shilpa Uskokovic. She's a food editor at Bon Appetit magazine, and she has been blowing my mind for a while now with recipes like her actually perfect pie crust, which has cream cheese in it, her raspberry mochi layer cake, and her brown butter everything. She has the cover story in next month's Bon Appetit magazine, which is all about cake. Shilpa, welcome to Nerdette. I honestly, that was the best introduction. Can you like, can I like have you come over with me everywhere I go? And then. Yes, please. (laughs) I would be thrilled. (laughs) Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here. Oh my gosh. I'm super excited. So also in this episode, we're going to talk to someone about cookies, which I think is going to be really fun just to sort of like a baking themed episode. But I would love to hear since you do have this cover story all about cake, like what is it for you about cake in particular? It probably has something to do with the fact that cake was the first thing I ever baked. Um, Mm. I remember being 10 or 11 uh, and I have this cookbook. It was like a kid's cookbook and it was like huge, um, hard cover book um, and everything was illustrated. So it would show you all the ingredients and it would show you step by step. And I loved it. And I still, you know, that's if I ever write a cookbook, that's how I would want to have one <laughs> with pictures and step by step illustrations. Uh, and anyway, there was a recipe for a plain vanilla cake in it. And I was like, I'm going to make this. I don't know why I was bored and I wanted to do something and I decided I'm going to make it. Uh, and then my grandma was pacing back and forth. Um, <laughs> worried that I was going to probably burn the house down or something. I don't know. My parents had this like old wood paneled Panasonic, which was a microwave, but also an oven, which, wow. again, I'm not sure why we don't have more of those. (laughs) So I baked it in there. And that's how I guess my first relationship with cake, I guess. And I've loved it ever since. That's so sweet. So you have a couple of recipes in here. All of them look amazing. I may or may not have already added what I'll need for the carrot cake sheet cake into my grocery shopping list. But which one, I don't know if you had to pick a favorite of the five in here, which one are you most excited about? I think the one I'm proudest of is the confetti cake with mm. chocolate sour cream frosting. Um, that one to me just hit everything that I wanted from a cake of that kind, like a really simple, soft, tender yellow cake and this chocolate frosting that's really simple. And I'm not really a frosting gal. Like I hate buttercream, for instance. Um, Same. Oh my God. Great. (laughs) (laughs) You're a friend. (laughs) What do you not like about it? I find it's usually, it's like 
too thick, too gooey, too sweet. Like I often will avoid it altogether. You know, like I'll just eat the cake. Yes. Uh, me too. I always <laughs> it off. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No matter which uh, buttercream, American buttercream, Italian, like Swiss meringue, any of them, I hate them. So for me, this was a really great frosting for the cake. It wasn't overpowering. It wasn't too sweet. It tastes like chocolate custard like a really good chocolate pudding almost god that sounds amazing yeah it's it's interesting to hear that you hate buttercream it makes sense because yeah i've never seen you use one and you i mean one of the cakes that i made with my boyfriend kind of early on actually in our relationship was um your chocolate cake with like a brown butter frosting (laughs) and he doesn't even like chocolate and he was like this is insanely good Winning over the significant other is always a <laughs> always a big one. Um, I love that cake. Yes, there was something about that cake um, that really appealed to a lot of people. I guess part of it was, you know, to do with the absolute ease of that cake. You just really comes mm-hmm. together almost in one bowl. You sift the dry ingredients in one. You mix it all together in other, and you can just wipe out that, you know, the bowl that you use for the dry ingredients. You don't even have to wash it. Um, so there was something about that super simple cake, which baked up, you know, really tender, really light, fluffy, extremely chocolatey, but not overwhelmingly sweet. And then it was paired with this frosting, which was, yes, was it was an American buttercream. So it was just butter and powdered sugar. But then I come in and add this boosted brown butter, which just sort of changed the game and really delivered on brown butter flavor. And I think that plays really well with the chocolate flavor, intensifying it, you know, complementing it, making it sweet, salty, nutty, everything at once. And it was very unexpected experience. Yeah, it was really cool. It's the only buttercream I've ever liked. And it was so cool to like, I think that was the first of your recipes where I was like, who wrote this? And what else (laughs) is she working on? And like, following the links and being a real creep about it. But then of course, I found your article with the headline for the best browned butter, you need milk powder. And you did just like completely blow my mind with that. Yes. And and it also speaks to, in a way, my philosophy when it comes to cooking and baking. It's about Hmm. really you know, learning the hows and whys behind cooking rather than just cooking or just following a recipe. I think to me, that's what's most interesting um, and what's most valuable when you're learning to cook is to know why you're doing something or know how you can do something to make it better or make it the best version of itself. So when I came across this trick, I first read about it in the blog, Ideas in Food, which Mm. is absolutely a treasure trove of excellent ideas and food um, (laughs) as the name suggests so the way to make the brown butteriest brown butter is adding a scoop of milk powder to your browning butter and this is because milk powder is really the component that makes brown butter brown butter is the milk solids Mm -hmm. in butter and milk powder is nothing but pure concentrated milk solids it's just milk with all of the, you know, fat and liquid removed. So all you have left is the milk protein and sugars. And so when you add that to butter and brown it, it takes it to another level. It just <laughs> boosts the butter up. Like it's this high octane juice for the brown butter. <laughs> it's spectacular. Oh my God, that's such a great way of putting it. It's really interesting to hear you talk about your philosophy of it all because I feel like 
you strike a really interesting balance of making recipes that are accessible and fun, but that still might like stretch a home cook's skill set and ingredient list. Yes. I mean, I'm very heartened to hear you say that my recipes <laughs> feel accessible because I always get teased in the test kitchen that um, I do overthink my recipes or I do. And I do. I do. I admit that. I'm the first to admit that I am a massive overthinker and I overthink everything. For instance, uh, the confetti cake that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I was developing that cake. I was like, oh, my God, I really just want to use all purpose flour, you know, so that most people, the most number of people can make this cake. I didn't want to call for cake flour. So I tested it that way. It didn't work out the way I wanted to. Then I was like, oh, I don't want to use, you know, like buttermilk because again, most people don't have buttermilk. So I tested it with milk. I tested it with sour cream. I was like, I don't want to use this technique. I don't want to use that mixing technique. I want to make it in one bowl. So I really try to think of every possible variation that a home cook might encounter. And then I try to arrive at the simplest one without compromising on the final taste and texture that I had in mind. Mm. So something I really find interesting about your work is that, you know, I mean, you went to culinary school, you worked at Michelin starred restaurants, but you don't seem super snobby about any of that stuff, which so often I think food content can these days. And I don't know, like I think about the story you wrote recently, like in defense of American cheese or you know, singing the praises of Trader Joe's wine. You talk about a love of instant pudding in your bio. Yes. What's your philosophy about food in general and sort of like, I don't know, enjoying what's good, whether that means super esoteric and fancy or just like delicious? I think to me, the important question to ask is, is something tasty? (laughs) Is it something you like to eat? And if the answer is yes, then it doesn't matter what that food is. It's great. Uh, It could be, you know, caviar and it could be truffles, or it could be, as you mentioned, instant pudding and American cheese. Uh, There's really no right or wrong. And I think you make a good point that, you know, there's no need to be snobby about food. Everybody's taste is subjective uh, and there's space for everyone's opinions. Uh, You know, there is something to be said about you know, the people who come out in police saying, oh, but this is not healthy. It has chemicals, etc." Mm-hmm. True. That is 100% true. Agreed. But I'm really of the mentality that moderation, things are fine. <laughs> Trust me, you're probably breathing in the air and drinking water that's right? just as just as terribly chemical laden as any instant pudding. So while I'm not asking you to eat instant pudding or American cheese every single day, it's about you know, the reason I call for those ingredients is because they fulfill a specific purpose. I think cooking is sometimes we overthink it. uh, And we always think it has to be this super thoughtful process with expensive ingredients or restaurant techniques, but it doesn't have to be. And it's really all about your mentality and what makes you feel good. Shilpa, thank you. This was so much fun. I would love to have you back anytime, please. Oh, yay. Me too. I had a grand old time. Up next, in keeping with our baking theme, we are shifting from cake to go all in on cookies. On like a very literal level, I am definitely like a chewy cookie person. That is Jesse Shefchek. He's the author of the cookbook Cookies, the New Classics. 
which means he has spent hours of his life perfecting cookie recipes. I feel like my agent would kill me, but I'm like, you know, I uh, I don't think I like eat cookies for enjoyment quite yet. I'm still like, um, <laughs> I'm still working towards that. But what Jesse actually really likes about cookies is that they're accessible. It's one of the desserts that bakers at home can totally feel capable of conquering. Like in a way I could take some like flavors or visuals or combinations that maybe like are unexpected or push home bakers, but like in a way that they feel like they can accomplish. So Jesse brought us four cookie recipes to give a try, starting with a malted brownie biscotti. I love malt. I feel like it's like one of my mini tricks I use over and over again. To make biscotti, it takes multiple bakes in the oven. And this one, Jesse loved for its shiny texture. So yeah, you make the dough, you bake like a big slab, essentially. You slice it into biscotti and then you bake it once more so they're crispy. And that second bake, you can kind of tailor. So if you want them like really crispy, you can go all the way. Or if you want them like a little chewy, like an actual brownie, you can like cut them off halfway. Next up on the list is a Campari shortbread cookie, which is topped with a really beautiful bright pink glaze and chunky orange sugar. The Campari glaze was so stunning, this pink color. And I'm like, oh, I should just push this all the way, like visually. So after developing them, I got this coarse sugar and I like zested oranges into it and then rubbed it into the sugar so it stains them that orange color and also like perfumes them and it was really cool because like to me it tasted like the orange peel inside of like a negroni cocktail sometimes a recipe can take a lot of time to perfect which means you have to bake it over and over and over again which means you have to have a bunch of supplies so for this project I would just order two quarts of vanilla extract at a time and 50 pounds of butter at a time. So I have one apartment fridge, so I would say the bulk of the fridge was butter for a solid, like, three months. That was very necessary for his next recipe, red wine brownie cookies. Adding any form of liquid to cookie dough makes the cookies cakey. So he had to figure out a process to get rid of some of that extra liquid. And this is probably going to blow your mind, but the solution is actually something that Shilpa sort of talked about too. It's all about browning the butter. When you brown the butter, it takes out all the water content in the butter. And butter is like roughly like 20% water. So it's pretty high actually. And then to that pot of brown butter, you add whatever liquid you're using. So in this case, red wine. And you reduce... So you get like that intense wine flavor, but you don't get as much water content. So it's essentially replacing the water that's in the butter. So your cookies still end up nice and chewy. Jesse also made lemon crinkle cookies with a twist. So in this case, the lemon is taken out and it's replaced by chopped up preserved lemons. And I also took out all the salt in the dough. So the preserved lemons are giving like the tang, the citrus flavor, the salt content. And you add the chopped up preserved lemons in the step when the sugar and butter are being combined. So like the paddle of the mixer like smashes it into the dough. They have this kind of like interesting, almost like a funky flavor. In the end, Jesse has one ultimate goal for his home bakers. So I just want my readers to feel cool. 
just want like people to bake through this and be like the cool person at the party when they bring these cookies. And you can be cool too. All the recipes we talked about today are at our website, wbez.org slash nerdette. Just click on the headline, Brown Butter FTW. We would also love to see what you are baking these days. You can share your favorite cake and cookie recipes in our Facebook group. It's called Nerdette Headquarters, and you can find that if you go to facebook.com slash groups slash Nerdette HQ. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman. J.P. Swenson builds our newsletter, and Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.